לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another special edition of Parsha Talk, this Shabbat Shuvah edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malman in Highland Park, New Jersey. Joining me, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Salman Schechter, Long Island, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski of Anshay Chesed in New York City. Shalom, everyone. It's great to see you. Gemar Chatima Tova. Nam Lacha. A seal, a good seal. Sealed, get sealed well. Just a... Uh, Uh, can you do a, a short reflection on your Rosh Hashanah experience? Jeremy, talk about the shofar blowing in Manhattan. It sounded... Yeah, we had... Well, in my, in my show, we did have a... Uh, we, we, for the most part, live streamed, and we always had like about 10 to 12, sometimes up to 15 people in small units so they didn't have to spend too much time in the sanctuary. It's so weird, you know, to be, to be in this mo- mostly empty sanctuary. Uh, but... On the second day when we blew the shofar, we did two things which were really nice. We blew the shofar outside of the building right after services. We got, you know, uh, many members of our kahal who could, who could walk by got to, got to come by. And so we got to see each other and had a moment of togetherness and blew the shofar. But we also organized about 15 shuls here on the west side of Manhattan. We, we stationed shofar blowers at four in the afternoon up Broadway between Lincoln Center and Columbia University. So the shofar rang out. For really hundreds of people and I was so happy that that the the collection of shuls in the neighborhood were able to to help lots and lots of people do this most signature mitzvah and you know I just I was so blown away by how many people wanted to hear the shofar they went they went to shul they didn't go to shul they always go to shul they never go to shul people came out we put we had good good publicity and people came out because they wanted to do this mitzvah it warms your heart and That even under bad circumstances Jews want to be able to be connected to the shofar it's so amazing it's so amazing I had a similar experience of course we, we don't live in the West side we live in Highland Park New Jersey where we, we can actually take a piece of the street in front of the shul and blow we had about a hundred people in front of the shul well the shofar it was and first the weather was just amazing the sun was so bright and shining and and It's just joy. It was just pure joy to be with everybody, to see everyone. And, and we, we miss this idea all the time that, that you know, we were so consumed with the, the awe of the Yamim Noraim. We forget how joyous it is to be together and, to, and the sound of the shofar, which has so much memory associated with it. It's so much, um, you know, the, so many different layers of meaning. But you know what? One of the primary layers of meaning is it's just... It's just a lot of fun. It's joyful. You know, it's we, we, had, um, we had some security personnel, and we have a, a company, you know, and they're not, not, not Jewish guys. And one of, the, one of the security guards said to me how his heart was warmed by, he said, you know, this time we've got all this isolation, and, you know, you guys got together to do something out loud in the street and together, and he, he just felt, you know, affirmed that society's going to go on. We'll, we'll see if society goes on, but it seems like... <laughs> no, we're going to go on. The society's going to go on. I don't know, Barry, had any reflections on, on 
shofar or anything that so i was in the small shul where i go normally we have 25 to 30 people men is an orthodox shul on rosh hashanah we had 17 or 19 for the two days and but it, we we're in a tent so we were outside and yet covered and it was very hamish and you know as i suggested last week the numbers count it doesn't matter it's not the number but that you're with a community that makes a big difference. And it could be a small community this year. It could be a large community, as we hope we will see next year. But to be with other Jews on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is very special. So just before we begin, we want to just do our, our regular shout-out to, to our, our, our growing audience of viewers and listeners. We want to thank you again for, for joining us. Uh, over, over the last week and a couple of weeks, I've, I've been hearing from so many of you, people in the shul, people outside of the shul, friends, uh, people all over the world, all over North America, writing into us, and uh, we're just so honored that you are with us and share this uh, this time with us. And we want you to share these uh, these conversations with everyone. And then you know we're going to open up a business, sell T-shirts and mugs and everything. <laughs> One day we're going to be able to have a live live show and exactly. we'll get together and we'll have a barbecue and we'll barbecue the tofu and the seitan and all the Amazing. all the good vegetarian stuff and we'll parsha talk live we'll do it like from kent connecticut or something i don't know that would be great <laughs> all right shabbat shuvah this is shabbat shuvah the shabbat in between you know, rosh hashanah and yom kippur called shuvah because of the after which we'll examine in a moment uh, but this is also the, the Shabbat that we read, Parshat Hazinu. Parshat Hazinu, second last Parsha in the Torah. We're going to spend some time thinking about Hazinu. We should just, we should just orient everyone to say, Hazinu is supposed to be a, a testimonial to the people. If you, if you just dial back to the previous Parsha, at the end of Parshat Vayelech, where, where um, it is the instruction to to write down a poem, it's verse 19 in chapter 31, write down this poem and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths in order that this poem may be a witness against the people of Israel. So it's sima b'fihem, put in their mouths. So this poem that is comprises the majority of this parsha is supposed to have, I guess, a testimonial uh, value. It is almost going to have a liturgical value, and it never becomes that, which is very interesting. What well, is we also, borrow some of the verses for a liturgy, right? As you say, Elliot, the, the poem itself does not survive intact, but one of my favorite verses in the liturgy comes from this parsha, the third verse, Ki it's a line that we say before we actually begin the Amidah and Musaf and Mincha. And it says that I will proclaim the name of the Lord and ascribe greatness to our God. And at least liturgically, one of the things I like is that we have two different names for God here because our experience and prayer of God is multivalent. We don't really see or look at God in the same way throughout our entire prayer experience. And this first suggests that there are avenues to explore and avenues of entry in the very way that we address God. So, so indeed, I think that that is, it's, you know, to pick out 
verses that are part of the liturgy, um, and also to understand, and this, this is a very useful text to teach some basics on biblical poetry. And what, in, in the example, the verse that you cited is, is simply an example of what we call parallelism. That is to say that in each verse, each line, there's part A, part A prime, I guess you can call it. That is to say one aspect, the second aspect comes to mirror and enhance it. So in, you, in, in the verse you said, Kishem Adonai Ekra, for the name of the Lord I proclaim, give glory to God. Adonai Eloheinu, these are two uh, very, very parallel items. Even the next verse, which is another verse that's quoted in liturgy, Hatsur Tamim Poalo, Kiko Rachav Mishpat, the rock, his deeds are perfect, all his deeds are just. El Emunavein Avel, Sadiq who a faithful God, never false, true and upright is he. And you know, having officiated in many funerals and recited this line, as uh, many, you know, we all do, uh, this is the, the, the first line of Tzidukadin. Again, a, a, a piece of, a very important liturgical text recited over the, the burial, right at the burial. Yeah. But I think, I think you are also correct to say that this appears to, to be a kind of apex of the Torah itself and the expectation that it is going to be extremely central um, to to you know the people's experience, and I think you're correct to say you know maybe it's because of the liturgical calendar as we have it. This is always going to fall right around Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, in which we've got frankly you know bigger fish to fry, and uh, and people don't focus on so much. But I think that there's perhaps an additional reason why Ha'azinu didn't really get into the hearts of of the people. Just last week we read, you know, you, you Jewish people, you got this. It's, it's not up in heaven. It's not over the sea. It's you can, you have it in your heart. It's in your mouth. You can do it. And that's this great pep talk. And then you get in Ha'azinu, you know, you are a wicked and perverse generation. Um, you know, uh, uh, you are, you are, you are, uh, uh, what's, what's the line? I'm Naval. I'm Naval the Lochacham. Foolish people, foolish people with no wisdom. Uh, you, it's, it's consistently, you're, you're, you're with the vine of Sodom. And it's, it's really yeah, kind of an unrelentingly bleak, um, uh, 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 you know, sermon at them, not, not, not very affirmative. And I do think that as a religious message, you know, this is a part, we have, we have the Tochecha, one in Leviticus and one in Deuteronomy, and we have these things, and it's fine that we have prophets like Jeremiah, that's part of the whole, you know, repertoire in the Torah and the Tanakh, but uh, in proportion, and, and it's a little hard to think that Hazinu would be an inspiration to people. I just, I just think it's... So I, I, let, me, let me just build, a, give you one more example of this, which I think is the, the center turning point in this, uh, in this text, and that is verse 20, where after God saw and was vexed and spurred his sons and daughters, he said, Astira fanai mehem, ere ma'acharitam, kidor tapuchot ema, banim lo bam, which means, I will hide my face from them. 
I will see what their end will be, for they are a treacherous breed, children in who, with no loyalty to them. And that's the, the idea that God will abandon the people. And that everything from verse 20 on is the consequences of divine abandonment. And I, I've maintained in, in many times, you know, teaching the, the, this text and, and other texts, you know, that are connected to the theme of the hiddenness, that we can deal with a lot of things. You and I, we can deal with a lot of things. We, we've gone through stuff. One thing we can't deal with that just is abandonment, divine abandonment. Or, you know, think of it as, you know, parental abandonment. Um, the, the people that I have encountered in, in my rabbinate who have suffered the most are people that, for whom there is an, not a, just an estranged relationship between them and their parents, but it's, it's a the sense that the, the child was abandoned at a young age by, by a parent. You, you don't recover from that. And you, you carry that through your life. And here, this is what God is saying. I'm going to abandon you. I'm going to turn away from you. And that, Jeremy, that, that's exactly what, I mean, why would you want to be reminded of that on a daily basis in your liturgy? It's just awful. It's traumatic. It's terrible. You know? Well, liturgy isn't a... Go ahead, go ahead, Barry, go ahead. Is an attempt to, to break the abandonment. But there's a subtext here because there's another abandonment in this Parsha, and that will come with the death of Moshe. Okay. But unlike God, Moshe can be replaced. Right? Joshua is going to take over. The Torah reading mentions Joshua being second in command at this point and to carry on for Moshe. And so even though we recognize Moshe as the greatest Jew who ever lived and the closest to God, as a leader, he can be replaced. But what can we do with God? We have no replacement for God. And so it's very poignant. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the, the reality of the experience of divine abandonment, you know, berege katon azabtich, there's a moment in which I turn away, but don't worry. That's the whole theme of the summer haftarot. Bad things happen. There are feelings of abandonment but there is pervasive reconciliation. And I think that, like, obviously a religious, a religious um, attitude has to deal with um, the, the reality of abandonment. I mean, you know, we had a shul trip. I know Elliot has also had a shul trip to, to Poland. I, I was at Auschwitz, and you know, I, read, I read the group this passage out of Eliezer Berkovich and, uh, and the sense of divine, divine abandonment. It's a reality you certainly cannot be a religious person, especially not a religious Jew, everything that the Jewish people have suffered without contending with it. But you don't want to elevate it as more than, you know, it's more central than it is. Even Eicha gives us, you know, Ula yesh tikva. Okay, we've got, we've got, we've got some hope for, for, uh, for something better. So this is very helpful in, in terms of the strategies of reading Torah and in the strategies of, of Tanakh altogether, because as, as we've argued many times, you know, this is one isolated text. It's not, it's not a text in a vacuum. There's a, there's a continuum on this whole idea. And the text that you cited, Jeremy, from Isaiah, Beshetz of Ketzef, you know, I, I abandoned you. You know, I, I abandoned you for a moment. That's in a continuum. That comes hundreds of years after this text. And it's, it, it is trying to basically soften the idea. And, and, I, and I think what's going on in the religious consciousness is 
we can't live with the idea that you would abandon us. It's just impossible. And where you were, of course, you know, Auschwitz being the, the symbol of that, the symbol of abandonment, you know, it's, it's, it's impossible not to wrestle with that as a modern Jew and to say, you know, do we live with, with divine abandonment? I think that when people do experience, you know, uh, uh, the suffering that they do inevitably in their life, they often say, you know, why, why have you abandoned me? And of course, you know, the answer is we, we, we build a whole structure around you. We don't, you know, it's, it's the, the, all of our faith is based on the fact that God doesn't abandon us. Adonai imadi, atai imadi, you are with me, you are with me. There's two, there's two, um, two distinct ways of dealing with this, this tremendous, religious ways of dealing with this tremendous trauma. Of, of abandonment. One is somebody can say, oh, oh my goodness, I discovered that there is no God. And, and so I'm not interested in God. You know, like Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens and all those like hard-nosed atheist guys, they don't, they don't say, you know, um, I feel abandoned. They say, oh, God doesn't exist. But if you are a religious person, <laughs> you, you are hurt by God, this abandonment, you are angry, you are scarred, because you have experienced sometimes the real presence. And that means that when the real presence is absent, um, then you feel the absence more intensely. I remember when Mother Teresa's spiritual diary came, came out and she talked about a great abandonment of God. And Christopher Hitchens, who I, who I think has a lot going, or the late, who had a lot going for him, he, he wrote this, I thought, just absolutely idiotic thing that said, uh, see, even Mother Teresa knows that there's no God, but it was exactly wrong. It was that if you have a feel, if you have felt the experience of presence, then the experience of absence is that much more intense. Yeah. You know what? I'm just thinking about as you're speaking. I'm thinking about so the experience that we just had Rosh Hashanah, and it's it's a lot of absence. It's a, you know, the community is absent. You know, we we either pray on our own, we pray in small groups. You know, and and the the way that we have identified. God's presence over these days is in Birovam, you know, in, in, in great multitudes. And maybe, you know, part of the thing that, that I think we're going to have to deal with, you know, over the, over the weeks and months ahead is, is that sense that we, we didn't get that whole big feeling. And so how do we get the, the, the feeling of God's closeness even in, you know, even in our living rooms, even in the small groups, even in the 17 you know, the tent, even in, in, in the shul with, with, with just a few people. And I think, I think that opens us up to the, these, the possibilities of these experiences. You know, we're going into Yom Kippur, you know, where, where we do feel uh, a sense of closeness, abandonment, closeness, you know. The, the, it's not an accident, I think, that, that we're reading Haz, you know, and this theme prior to these days. These are these important ideas. But, but um, so, so the... the the, the text is a difficult text. It's a, com it's a complicated Hebrew text, too, yeah, and complicated thematic text. But if we just kind of go to the, the postscript here, I'd like you to talk about um, after the poem, after the psalm, from, from verse 45 on, where it says, Vayichal Moshe Daber, he stops. It's, you know, a nice allusion to creation. Vayomer Alehem, Simu Levachem, here, remember it. And then, nice punchline, Kilo It's not empty, it's not a trifling thing. It's your very life. 
You will lengthen your days. Can you offer a reflection on Lodavarek? Tell me something, Jeremy. There, you want to go? Here we go. So I am struck by the end of it, the end of the verse where it says, Tarichu Yamim Alha Adama, Asher Atem Shama Moses stops speaking because he's not going to go in with the people. And there is tremendous poignance and pathos in these last chapters of Devarim because Moses is separating himself and being separated from the people, and yet he's trying to hold on. And, you know, as we talked before, I thought I would mention it now, you know, God is relentless, now, there's an image of Moses near the end of the Varim that he's 120, still strong as an ox, can see as well as he did ever. And yet he's not going to make it to the promised land because he sinned. And the last thing that God tells him is you're not going in because you sinned. And it's such a punch, you know, I think we've all had the experience of having the wind knocked out of us. In a sense, that's what death is. The wind is being knocked out of us. You know, the kiss of death is the inspiration that causes our expiration. <laughs> you know, I think that as we approach Yom Kippur, the great day of judgment, it gives us something to think about. You know, how are we going to confront God? Is the last thing on our mind going to be our sin? Or are we going to look and find some kind of comforting embrace? You know, that's such a, such a powerful theme. And, of course, the Ne'ila is really the recitation. It's, if you think about the Shema, Baruch Shein Kavod, that's that's what you say to a person as they're lying on their deathbed. It's... Yeah. You know, you remember the late Alan Liu, Rabbi Alan Liu, Zikron Racha, beautiful human being, and, and in, in his wonderful book, he talks about Yom Kippur as the rehearsal, rehearsal for death, you know, and, and, and you're wearing the kittel, and, and these are the lines that are recited of Yidui at the end. And uh, yeah, so the question is, what are you going to take? What are the words that are going to be on your lips? Is it I've yeah. sinned, or is it, I proclaim your faith to the world? Yeah. Uh, the, um, you know, speaking of the vidui, what are the last words on your lips of all my sins? And, and, and so when I do the vidui, deathbed vidui, usually for somebody who can't, you know, speak themselves, I, I add this line, you know, that say all the shaviti, shakatati, shapashati, and I always say, you know, and, and may all the mitzvot that I have done stand beside me because it's just I, I don't think it is is accurate i don't think it is correct to say that the thing that you need to leave the world on is the note of your failings which are true i mean the failings are true um i but i think that the rounded reality of life is th that we have both of those things we carry them we carry those those achievements and those failings but i think the the religious message is that we're not supposed to see death as a failure but as a stage of life. Right. And if we only dwell on the failure, it's hard not to see death itself as a failure, as if somehow we're responsible for our own death, when in fact, 
we die because we were born. There's a wonderful passage in uh, Telushkin's book, um, the code there, be holy or holiness. Um, and he talks, he, he quotes, I think it's Yitz Greenberg who has uh, a set of not al for the sins, but for the mitzvah, yeah. you know, yeah. and, and um, the recitation of mitzvot, the recitation of things that you have done, and, and rather the things that you are regretful for, the things that you still hope for, the things that you still hope for in your relationships. So I, one of my, um, she, she used to be the, the director of Ramon Canada, she, she has something on her website now talking about, she's a coach now, relationship coach, and she was saying how people at this time of the year focus on so many things that are negative in their relationships that they want to repair. But she says, maybe if you focus a little bit on what's good and why you fell in love in the first place and why uh, you have, you know, the, the life that you have, maybe that that can rekindle and restore uh, something and, and therefore orient your thinking over these days. And I thought that that was a very, very lovely thing to say. That is totally lovely. There's a, the, um, I, I use with wedding couples, this book by the, psychologist John Gottman, like seven keys to a successful marriage. And he said something somewhat similar to what you just said that um, he said with a couple that's having trouble, if, if they can tell them this, if, he can, if they can recount the story of their courtship and why they fell in love, then they got a chance. But if you can't even remember that, yeah. then, you're, then, then you're sunk. Uh, well, just back one thing to, to, to the Davar Rek. It's such a great line, and you know this is not a vain or trifling thing to you. And I think that it's a line that our, you know, American Jewish community, North American Jewish community, and maybe Israeli Jewish community needs to hear about this tradition. It is an inexhaustible treasure. Every everything in it, not everything in it you're going to love, but everything in it is potentially meaningful. So there's this line, "Lodavarek," who it's not vacuous, it's not empty, and. Uh, in, in the Chazal, in the Sages, it says, It is not vain for, from you. And if you find it empty or vacuous, it's your own fault. You haven't, you haven't tried with enough vigor. You haven't searched. And I, I totally, listen, not every single thing in Jewish tradition is going to move you, inspire you, be beautiful, or, or work for you. Tradition is too vast. Okay, No one person can find everything beautiful. But in general, I think this is true. When people say Judaism isn't meaningful to me, I'm not interested in it. Uh, you know, I, I got to say that um, I'm kind of skeptical that you put in the flow. So, you know, you were talking, Jeremy, if we can play a, uh, as if we were a Hasidim for a moment, when it says, the word is not emptier than you are. <laughs> And That's good. I want to tie that in with the beginning of the Haftarah, because the Haftarah is a great Haftarah. Shuva Yisrael ad Adonai Elohecha ki chashalta ba'avonecha. That we're commanded to return to return Israel up until the Lord your God, because you have stumbled in your sin. And the way to get to God is to recognize our sin and to pick ourselves up and keep going. That if we stop and become burdened and paralyzed by our sin, we cannot reach God. We have to go with our sin 
because that's the baggage that we carry, but we can carry it. And it is a burden that we can bear and we have to keep moving. And the, and the very next line is, of course, the, the strategy for, for owning it, right? Take words with you and return to, to God. It's, it's, the idea is that you have to find a way to articulate um, these things, to, to, to really articulate your, 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 your sense of self, your personhood, your flaws, your hopes, your dreams, your accomplishments, but also everything. This is the beautiful. This is a beautiful way in which you know, we being being the people of the book, the people of words. This verse is an example of the way the tradition says you can um, actually put these feelings, these experiences, the sense of self into words. The world is meaningful, and your relationship with the divine um, can be expressed in. A cognitive, semantic—it's words. You can speak it, and and you know, Baruch Amar God spoke the world into being. And if you wanna, if you wanna align yourself, it's gonna take your own act of speaking. Maybe it's you know, confession. Maybe that's part of it, but it's an effort to, to, like speaking means you can understand it. You can you can explain it. You can articulate it. Because meaning in the world is articulate, and we are the creature. You know the, the, that that's how you say rationality in medieval Hebrew. That the creature is it's the koach hadibor, which doesn't mean the power of speech. It means the power of rationality. Right, putting putting the words on something and then lifting that, you know, up to God. The the shuvu el adonai. The idea that you can actually come back to to God and come back to who you were meant to be here. Um, just you know. I'm going to just pick a verse here. Chapter 2, this is uh, Yoel. Tiku shofar b'tzion katshutsom kiru atzara. Solemnize a fact, proclaim an assembly. Um, or... Uh, well, here you have to continue with the next verse, because the opening verse, I was thinking of this verse when Jeremy was talking about the shofar blowing in Manhattan. It's about the, the tzom... And the asara, the stopping. Um, but isfuam kachu kahal kifsuzakeinim that we have to gather everyone together in holiness, both the old and the young. And we go forth like the bride, the groom from his chamber, and the bride from the chuppah. This is, as we were saying earlier, Elliot, the joy, that element of joy that is very much a part of the high holy days. We're together with the awe and the awesomeness. It's the, it's the coming together. And, and what is so fascinating, it's, it's multi-generational here from, from all, all, all aspects of, of, and of course, the, a special honored place to, to the old, old people as well. Um, I appreciate them more and more. Indeed. Like, uh, he said with his... To say Vatova. How about, um, I have done four tashlichs, five tashlichs. Yeah, yeah. I did small, they were beautiful on the Raritan River, little groups, and the, the, by today, the ducks recognized me already. <laughs> <laughs> we, we came in a small group, and so the verse for tashlich is, is the last verse, or second last verse of this haftarah. 
ישוב ירחמנו, יכבוש עוונותינו ותשליך במצולות ים, כל חטאותם. He will take us back in love, he will cover up our iniquities, he will hurl all our sins into the depths of the sea. You know, I, I, I'm not into the magical, uh, but I do love the ritual of tashlich. I really do. Yeah, me too. It's such a special thing, and you know, coming into contact with water and streams of water, and of course the idea that, you know, all rivers run to the sea, that, that you throw your crumbs in and, and they end up in the gullet of a duck or a fish or in the ocean, and that they're dissolved. And, and there's something, you know, quite vicarious about that. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful, we're, we're coming into contact with water, with life in some ways. Um, any thoughts on the, the last verse? Well, well, Rav Yitzhak, the two of us are Yaakov's. Yeah. So, um, so I actually, this, this verse is, is big in my, in my spiritual heart, you know, universe. That's what I aspire to, just truth, honesty. Keep the faith with Jacob. Chesed Abraham. And Chesed Abraham, because this is what God promised us all those years ago. Yeah, and the Yemei Kedem are the days of Yaakov and Abraham, yeah. but they're also our days as well. Right. That we continue what God gave to Abraham and Yaakov, and sometimes we're going to emphasize the truth, and sometimes we're going to emphasize the grace but we're going to continue on the path of our ancestors and bequeath it to our descendants. Amen. And it's such a, it's such a wonderful line to, to conclude with. I mean, it's this, this beautiful idea that, that we are in the continuum of a tradition, going, looking back and also holding things for the future. And, you know, think about all the different, you know, moments that we're going to have. There's of course the, the poignant moment of Yisker, where, where that is happening. We're, we're, we're trying to heal the breach between the living and the dead. We're trying to connect them to our lives, and we're also trying to signify to our families, our descendants, you know, how important the past was, how important they are, so that we will be important to them. But we should think about life, and we should think about being sealed in, in, in the book of life. That's what we're after over the next few days, tshuva, to, to return, to, to feel a sense of closeness and not abandonment. Um, and the closeness comes from chavruta, closeness comes from study, closeness comes from prayer, the way that all of us are able to do that under these circumstances, which is still joyful and still beautiful. And of course, through the study of the Torah and through Parsha talk. And we look forward to seeing you on the other side of Yom Kippur. Yes, we will. We'll talk about Sukkot. Yes, we will. Meantime, everyone, Gemar Fatimah Tovah, Shabbat Shalom. Blessings to everyone. We'll see you all. Shabbat Shalom.